This week we are continuing our series, Unsung Heroes, Part 2. Last time we were in this series, we were looking at the promises of God and how God keeps them. We looked at Yehoshaba, the princess who saved the life of Yoash, the last of the line of David, and how through her bravery and quick thinking, the Davidic line was kept. God does not forget the promises that he has made, and we can trust in them and be secure in them. This week, the story of our unsung hero takes place in exile. Our hero is a name that some of us may have probably heard, but he's a side character in the story of his niece, whom he has taken on as a daughter. I've often viewed this character as more as a Gandalf-type figure in Scripture, wise and, and faithful. He gives the main character some fantastic advice and helps her ultimately achieve victory, though she is the one that has to take the scary and difficult steps that our unsung hero's advice leads her to. But as I worked through this story more this past week, a different struggle that our unsung hero faced jumped off the pages at me, and that's the struggle we're going to look at, or at least focus a little more on, this morning as we look a little deeper into the life of Mordecai. Mordecai has been taken into captivity, captivity, man alive, said that word weird, in Persia, along with many of his people, including his king and his young cousin, Hadassah. Hadassah, whose Persian name was Esther, was an orphan. The Bible doesn't tell us how her parents died or her family died, but what we do know is that she was raised by her cousin Mordecai. One night, the king in the area of Babylon that Mordecai has been exiled to, Xerxes, makes a request of his wife. He's thrown a great party and in a drunken stupor, and to show off how beautiful his wife is to his inebriated friends, he calls for the queen, Vashti, to be paraded around the party wearing not much more than her crown. She understandably refuses. This angers the king greatly. Following the advice of one of his advisors, he has Vashti sent away and removes her title of queen while also sending out an edict to every house under his rule that every man is the leader of his household and the women, the wives, are to obey. So the king no longer has a queen. And in order to replace Vashti, Xerxes decides to have a beauty contest. Women from all over the kingdom are gathered and given a year to complete a beauty regimen so that they are able to present themselves or to prepare themselves to be presented to Xerxes. They enter the royal residence at night and are returned to the harem in the morning. And there they wait to see if Xerxes will call on them again. This, this whole process is incredibly messed up. Esther wins the beauty pageant, though. Knowing what little we know of King Xerxes, I'm not sure I'm ready to call this winning. And so here's Mordecai, taken from his home, living in a foreign land, raising his young cousin as his own, and because of her beauty, she's taken from their house to go through a demeaning selection process. She ends up being selected as the new queen of a king who has a history of making highly questionable and offensive demands of his queens. Not exactly every father's wish for their daughter. But he's powerless to do anything about it, and so he does what he can. He visits her regularly. And during these visits, he warns her against telling anyone that she's a Jew. He told her to guard this secret, which she did. Eventually, Mordecai finds out, or finds work, at the king's gate. 
He's an official there. And this is where we will pick up with our text this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in Esther chapter 2. It's just a couple chapter of verses today. It's Esther 2, 21 to 23. If you'd like to read along in paper and ink, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. And if not, the words will be beside me on the screen. We read the word of the Lord. Esther chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your words this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. After Judah was born and Karen and I had moved from North Tonawanda, New York, back to Olympia, Washington, where our families were, I held a job at Target for a while working in the electronics department. Most of the time, the job was fine. I got to know uh, when the new video games were coming out and talk to people about TVs, headphones, portable speakers, and other electronics, including iPods, because back then, those were a thing. Uh, it wasn't the greatest job. Like, the, the pay w was lame, the hours were lame, but there were two main reasons my time at Target were mostly, or fairly anyway, I don't say mostly, but uh, it was a lot of, it was miserable. The first is that I would typically get scheduled to close. So I'd clock in around 2 p.m. and close at 10. Judah was a baby at the time, and Karen was nannying for a lady at our church, and so she had early mornings and would get home around 5. So the only times that I got to spend with Judah during my work week was when I would carry him to the car at 6.30 in the morning. And when Karen would bring him by Target on my lunch break at about 6 or 7 in the evening. It wasn't ideal. The other reason that my time at Target was less than enjoyable was that my bosses were not very good. They were nice. They meant well. They were just incompetent. They had no idea how to manage and knew very little about electronics. And so they kept messing things up. They kept making my life and my job more difficult by giving me bad instructions, realizing their errors, and then having me fix the mistakes they made in the first place. It got to the point that I would see them coming, walking down the aisle towards electronics, and I just kind of started grinding my teeth, having to force a smile when knowing that my day was about to get more complicated than it needed to be. And it was just frustrating. And our electronics department suffered for it. I, I wasn't let go, but many of my coworkers were blamed for the failures of the leadership over them. Ever had a bad boss? Ever had someone in authority over you that frustrated you and made your life more difficult? Someone that made things worse instead of better. Someone that you didn't feel was worthy of your respect. Maybe it was a terrible teacher. Maybe it was a poor supervisor, possibly a bad coach. Have you ever struggled with your mayor, your governor? How about your president? 
It can be extremely difficult to follow bad leadership. Now, I, I understand that, that bad leadership can be subjective. There were people in the electronics department at Target all those years ago that loved our management. District didn't. They, they all got fired shortly after I left. But there was still a group of people that really enjoyed the management that we were under at the time. I'm not here to talk about which presidents or mayors or governors or teachers or whatever have been bad and which have been good. I'm much more interested, our text is much more interested in how we have responded to our leadership even when we believe it to be poor leadership. I wonder what it was like for Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. An exile, his cousin, who is more like a daughter to him, has been taken through a demeaning process and chosen to be queen by a king who is given little evidence that he will respect her or treat her well. This dude asked that his last wife be put on display for a drunken crowd. This king stood against so much of what Mordecai believed, so much of what was dear and precious to him. And then he catches wind of this conspiracy. He hears the two guards talking. It's quite possible that Xerxes' death would set Esther free. The king was closer to immoral than he was moral. So would it really be so bad for these guards to follow through with their plan? He could just let it go. Pretend he hadn't heard anything. Get rid of the poor leader and set his cousin free in one fell swoop. But that's not what he did, is it? No. He told Esther of the plan. She reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. The plot was exposed, and the conspirators were put to death. And the whole story was written down in the annals, the, the stories of the king and his kingdom. Mordecai followed his civic duty, protected and served the poor leader, even though it would probably have been more beneficial for him to just look the other way and let the chips fall where they may. How would you, how would I have responded in that situation? We aren't always the best civil servants, are we? Not always the best students, employees, or citizens. It's easier to say, I don't respect this person, what they have done or what they stand for, and so I'm not going to help them, protect them, or follow them. That's the temptation. That's the struggle. When we disagree with or don't respect our leaders, it's hard to want to protect them or follow them. It's more difficult to go out of our way to follow them well. More enjoyable to just watch them flounder and maybe they'll do something stupid and remove themselves from being our problem in the first place. Which makes verses like we read earlier, or was read earlier in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, particularly difficult. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, we read in verse 1. Verse 5, there is... Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. And verse 7, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Those are incredibly difficult verses when you're under poor leadership. Leadership that we don't agree with. 
or that we have a hard time respecting. So how are we doing with that? And furthermore, does this mean we do everything that leadership, be it good or bad leadership, are we supposed to do everything that they say? Again, Mordecai sets a fantastic example of what it means to be a good citizen. So far, we've talked a bit about King Xerxes, Queen Esther, and the civil servant Mordecai. But we haven't introduced the last large character in this story yet. His name is Haman. Xerxes has a soft spot for this dude. The king elevates this man to the highest spot amongst all his nobles. Haman is Xerxes' right-hand man. And as much, all of the king's officials at the... As, and as such, all of the king's officials at the king's gate, by order of the king, are to kneel before Haman and honor him. And they all do, except for Mordecai. Yes, the king commanded it, but there is a higher power, a higher authority that Mordecai follows. He refuses to kneel and honor anyone in this way, but the God of his fathers. He will not bow to anyone but Yahweh. Day after day, the royal officials ask Mordecai why he is disobeying the king's command, but day after day, he refuses to comply. And this ticks Haman off. He likes the glory. He likes the honor. He likes people on their knees before him, and he wants Mordecai's head. He does a little research and finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. He's in exile. Haman knows about the Jews. They have little communities all through the lands that Xerxes controls. And the anger, the rage is building in Haman to such a degree that he doesn't want to just wipe the smile off Mordecai's face. He wants to wipe Mordecai's people out. So he goes to the king and he whispers in Xerxes' ears about this people that come from a different land that are different than the rest of them. This people who won't follow the customs or the laws that Xerxes has laid out. Haman offers the king a sizable donation for the privilege of disposing of this troublesome group of people. Keep the money, says the king, and do with the people as you please. Again, not a really good look for Xerxes. Doesn't do any research, just trusts his right-hand man. Haman sends out an edict that on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, that it will be open season on the Jews. They are to be annihilated, young and old, women and children. Everyone is to be put to the sword and their goods plundered on this particular day. Wouldn't it have just been better if Mordecai had gone along with the crowd on this one? Wouldn't it have just been better if he hadn't made a fuss? Just bend the knee, man. Just honor the fool. Look at what has happened. Look at where your adherence to your faith, your devotion to your beliefs and your God has gotten your people. It might be tempting to think like that. I know it is. But the story and life of Mordecai reminds us that it is important to follow, respect, and obey the leadership that God has put over us. But it is also important to recognize and remember that the laws of man do not supersede, they do not take precedence over, they are not of a higher authority than the laws, the instruction that we have been given by God. It can be tempting in today's world to follow the wisdom of the world we can and have talked ourselves into a variety of compromises, be they political, social, or educational, for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's for the sake of not making a big stink, trying to avoid unwanted attention. 
Maybe it's out of fear of what repercussions might be. Maybe it's because we have become ourselves convinced that they might be true. This is a problem on both sides of the aisle politically. And so we must watch ourselves and examine what we believe against what Scripture teaches. Oh, how important it is to follow the laws of God over the wisdom of man. Where man's knowledge and understanding shift with time, culture, and whoever is in leadership, the instructions of God are everlasting. They do not change and adapt. They are firm, steadfast, unchangeable, and eternal. And holding to them will often be the more difficult decision. But that does not mean that we are helpless or forgotten by the God we serve. Again, we look to Mordecai. Upon hearing the news of the upcoming slaughter of his people, he clothed himself in sackcloth and ashes and went wailing through the city, mourning the decision of Haman in a very loud and public demonstration. He made his way to the king's gate and word was sent to Esther that her cousin was going a little nuts outside. She sent a messenger to speak with him. Mordecai spoke with Esther through the messenger. He asked her to go to the king to stop the edict. She told him that there was a danger in approaching the king. If she approached him without invitation, the king would or could have her put to death. And to this, Mordecai responded with probably his most memorable line. Who knows, he said, maybe you were put in the royal position you have been given for such a time as this. A whole sermon could be done on that phrase. How the positions that we are in, be they positions of power or weakness, what we may consider normalcy, that God has us in those positions for a reason and with purpose. But we'll save that sermon for another day while we instead focus on how Esther responds to her cousin, her father figure's words. Pray for me, she says. Gather those of the faith in the city and fast for three days. I and my attendants will do the same. And once we have fasted, I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. Another fantastic and deep statement from this story of Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai, the good citizen, calls his cousin to action for the sake of God's people, and she responds. After three days, Esther approaches the king, and though she is breaking the law, he accepts her into his presence, and she invites Xerxes and Haman to a banquet for just the two of them. They go, but Esther's nervous. And instead of outing Haman to Xerxes right away, she delays by inviting them to another banquet the next day. Man, I can relate to Esther. Sometimes it's easiest to take things one step at a time. It's not as efficient, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong either. She mustered her courage and approached the king, then invited him to a banquet, but the courage didn't hold out long enough for her to report on Haman, which is fine. Because due to the delay, we get a pretty awesome little interlude. Haman went home that day, and as he was on his way home, he passed through the king's gate, and there he saw Mordecai. And just seeing Mordecai enraged him, and he was able to rest- but he was able to restrain himself and arrived home. And there he plotted with his wife and his friends on how he should deal with Mordecai. They told him that he should set up a pole in his yard, a real tall one, that with the permission of the king, he could have Mordecai impaled on in the morning and be done with the man forever. Remember earlier we talked about how Mordecai had saved the king's life and it was written down in the annals of the king? 
Well, typically in Babylonian culture, when someone does something of this magnitude, they are rewarded. The king couldn't sleep that night after this lunch with Esther and Haman, and so he had the stories, his, his stories of his kingdom read to him. When it came to the story of Mordecai's foiling of the assassination attempt, he stopped and asked if Mordecai had been rewarded for his actions, and he had not. The next morning, Xerxes asks Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Haman, being full of himself and believing that Xerxes is referencing him, because, I mean, really, who else could he be talking about? He responds that he would have this person clothed in the royal robe, placed upon a horse that the, the king himself has ridden with the royal crest placed upon its head, and then have one of the royal princes then parade around this individual around the town saying, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Xerxes says, perfect. I love it. Now go and do that for Mordecai, the Jew, and you be the one that parades him around town. Don't tell me that God doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> so, human gi so Haman gives Mordecai the treatment that he had expected to receive himself. And once the task is completed and he is returned to his house in grief and shame, the attendants of the king come to fetch him for the meal with Queen Esther. At the lunch, Esther asks the king to save her people. She tells him that her people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. That they are to be wiped from his lands. Who is the person who has dared to do such a thing, asks the king. And Esther reveals her heritage to Xerxes and Haman, pointing out that it is Haman who has enacted this terrible plan. The king is so ticked that he has to get up and leave the room. Haman is understandably terrified. He doesn't know... He doesn't, he, he doesn't follow the king, but he stays to beg Esther for his life. But just as the king is returning to the room, Haman loses his balance and falls onto the couch where Esther is laying down. Xerxes, seeing this, is even more incensed and shouts, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? The guards come in, they arrest Haman, and one of them tells Xerxes of the pole that Haman has set up for the purpose of impaling Mordecai upon it. The king has Haman impaled upon the pole instead. For a story with a slow burn, the ending sure takes some twists, doesn't it? But for all the drama and irony that this story holds, there is a truth, a promise that we can cling to. God saved his people. Though they were in exile, though they were far from home, God did not forget his people. He did not stop loving his people. He promises, his promises to them were not abandoned. Church, God did not abandon his promises then, and he will not abandon his promises today. Our stories will not always end the way we want them to. It's highly unlikely that we will be paraded around town with those that have hurt us, calling out how wonderful we are. But that isn't the promise that God has made. The promise that God made was that he would save his people. We need saving because we aren't always good citizens. We don't always follow our poor or good leaders like we're supposed to. And when the time comes for us to speak up for what is right, we aren't always perfect at doing that either. We are sinful humans, each and every one of us. We have missed the mark. We have fallen short of perfection. Often we are more like Haman than Mordecai more caught in our anger and the ill will we hold towards others than in the worship and instruction of our God. 
We are not perfect. We need saving. And God's promise to save us is a promise that he has kept. He kept it in the person of Jesus, his son, whom God sent to us, the broken and the needy, the angry and the vengeful, the prideful and the jealous. God sent us Jesus because we could do nothing to save ourselves, and so Jesus came. He came down to live among us, to suffer alongside us, to teach us and to love us. Sure, we are broken, but, but we are broken. And so one day, not because he was guilty, but because we accused him and convicted him, Jesus took a cross upon his shoulders and made his way up the hill to Calvary. And there he was nailed to the cross and displayed for all to see. And on that cross, Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself. The Bible tells us that there on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. And because of our sin, the wrath of God was poured out upon him instead of us. The wrath that we had rightfully earned was turned upon Jesus. And there on the cross, Jesus died, paying our debt of sin. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him for our salvation, when our hope is in Christ, when we rest in the faith that God has given us, the Bible tells us that we are saved. That through faith we are covered by the work of Christ. This is our hope. This is our salvation. That because of Christ's work on the cross and our belief in it, the dirty rags of our sinfulness have been taken from us and we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. O Christian, rest in the work of our Savior done on your behalf. This is how we are saved. God keeps his promises. And he uses us, doesn't he, in his kingdom's work. Yes, it was Esther who braved the wrath of the king and outed Haman, the second most powerful person in the kingdom. And she deserves a ton of credit for that. But let us not forget Mordecai, the cousin, the father figure, the faithful believer, the good citizen, who God used to push Esther to do what needed to be done for the sake of God's people. It is not easy to be a good citizen all the time. It can be confusing and difficult in days and times like the one we live in today. But as we struggle through the decisions and the questions, the poor leadership and the immorality masquerading as morality, let us look to our unsung hero this morning. And may the story of Mordecai help us to draw the lines where we need to and speak up where we are called to. And for the times we fail, let us remember that God saves his people. Let us remember the work of Christ on our behalf and let us rest in the grace that God has poured out over us. So go, church. Be good citizens and be reminded of God's grace, love, and mercy that he has lavished upon us richly. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, just, and awesome God we serve. Amen.